Listen up, it's the Speakeasy with Annie Madden and Carla Trelaw. Conversations in the margins. A comfortable space for uncomfortable topics. We're back in the Speakeasy studio, Annie. How are you today? I'm well. Um, how are you, Carla? Yeah. yeah. Glad it's the end of the week. Yeah, I know. It feels yeah. a bit that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, busy times. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, as you say, we are back here today. And today, it's a real pleasure, actually, because we've got um, our guest on Speakeasy is the... <laughs> let's start again. Our guest on Speakeasy is um, a really dear friend and colleague and someone that both Carla and I have worked with uh, quite for quite a long time, over many years now, um, and that is, of course, the incredible Tony Trimmingham. Uh, welcome to Speakeasy, Tony. Thank you, ladies. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Tony will be known to many of uh, Speakeasy's li- listeners, and um, he mostly is known as being the founder of the Damien uh, Trimmingham Foundation and, of course, as the CEO of Family Drug Support, which is a national organisation that supports families affected by alcohol and other drug issues. And they operate a telephone support line, um, among other programs, um, in most of the states and territories of Australia. And that, what's important about that is it's uh, fully staffed by volunteers. Um, Tony is also the co-founder, along with yours truly and uh, Gino Vumbaka, of uh, Harm Reduction Australia, which is a recently formed national drug policy advocacy organisation. So, Tony, we're going to get straight into it from from there. And uh, we did mention that your name will be known to many of our listeners, but we're going to kick things off with uh, perhaps a lesser known fact about you, which was that you were actually born in England and came to Australia in... I think 1968 as a young man and um, as they used to call it then as a, a 10 pound pom I believe it was called um, uh, you know tell us a little bit about your life back then when you moved to Australia and and you know who were you before you were the CEO of Family Drug Support? Yeah okay well you're right I, um, I came to Australia in 1968 uh, I was 20 years old I came with a friend we were here for basically a holiday mm. and an adventure um, the the conditions of the 10 pound POM program was that they paid your fare to Australia and you had to stay for two years as long as you stayed two years you didn't have to repay the fare uh, well you, so you did well on that KPI <laughs> didn't you well I did pretty well yeah. I, I had no intention of going back at, of staying here at all initially mm. I fully expected to go back um, all my friends were there, my family yeah. was there, my favourite football team, all of that. <laughs> um, but like many people, life took a turn, of course. I got married um, uh, and thing, got a job and things changed. And 50 years later, yeah, uh, I spent here. more time in Australia than I ever did in the UK. Oh. Yeah. And what sort of work were you doing when you when you say you got a job, Tony? What what's your career been prior to family drug support? Okay, so I, I started off in England as a you know started doing accounts work, uh, and pretty well followed the same path when mm-hmm. I got to Australia. Um, my first job actually was at Taronga Zoo. Would you believe um, <laughs> doing awesome. doing the accounts there and <laughs> collecting the money? Um, so the yeah, accountancy was my background. Um, it was a job I never, never ever really liked though. Mm. And um, 
Having done the Myers-Briggs test is uh, <laughs> actually a career that's totally unsuited to <laughs> my ah, dear, dear. temperament. So um, it, I guess uh, about oh, 20 years after I'd been in Australia, I, I did a shift. I uh, Well, my life sort of fell apart a bit. My, um, I divorced um, and I had two children to look after. I, I was a single parent of two children. Right. Um, I, I sought help, uh, to help with childminding and after-school care. And along with that, I, I went to counselling, and I guess that was the turning point mm -hmm. for me. I then did a hell of a lot of therapeutic work on myself, and through that um, became connected to an organisation that did marriage counselling and group work. Uh, I trained... Uh, I got qualified in, in therapeutic work and uh, uh, yeah, so I had, then I had two or three jobs um, uh, in, that, in that field. Something else that <laughs> not many people know and it will probably amuse you, but I, I actually also started uh, Australia's first computer dating service. <laughs> no uh, way! Oh, brilliant! Yeah, yeah, that's true. And a singles <laughs> club. And um, yeah, I had about a thousand marriages out of that program. And uh, and uh, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting time in my life. I, um, uh, I, I, I you know it was a good time. Yeah. I learned a lot about myself. I did a lot of work on myself. Um, and and it sort of prepared me for what I'm doing now, although I never expected it to take the, mm, the other yeah. turn that it took. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and well, I had two yeah. children and my my uh, middle son, my middle son, because I now have a younger child as well, um, got involved in drugs, obviously, and that's where everything changed. Yeah. So let's touch on that, um, Tony. That In 1997, your son Damien tragically died from a heroin overdose and he was just 22. And you've spoken yeah. publicly a lot about the circumstances of Damien's death over the years. And, and one of the things we were interested in exploring with you is how much you knew about drug use and drug dependency, addiction, overdose at, at the time of Damien's death and how has that shaped your thinking and your journey since? Yeah, it's a, it's a really big question. Mm. And uh, the reality is I knew very little about drug use. Uh, I knew nothing about Damien's heroin use until he had been using for about 18 months. I remember the day I found out, and I'll come to that in a minute. Mm -hmm. But I suppose prior to that, I had a um, daughter uh, who's older, five years older than Damien. I had two stepchildren and Damien. Um, I guess all of them were involved in some drug use as, as teenagers. Uh, I suspect that all of them uh, use cannabis mm -hmm. and alcohol, um, and that would be the same with Damien. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't ever expect that mm -hmm. it would uh, escalate to he heroin in the way that it did. Mm -hmm. That was a profound shock. Mm -hmm. um, for, the, for the 18 months to two years that Damien had been using, I, on reflection, could see that the signs were there, mm. but because of my ignorance and because I never mm. expected it to happen mm. to me or to my family, and I missed the signs. And I think that's very, very typical of a lot mm. of families. We we don't see what's going on. 
Yeah. Um, the person themselves are, are doing it underground anyway mm. because it's illegal and and they don't want to upset you and all sorts of stuff like that. So um, it's not obvious. Mm. But but what was in fact happening in that 18 months prior to the time I found out was that Demi was spending a huge amount of money. Right. Um, it, it, I think we calculated that he'd spent over $32,000. Wow. Um, He'd, mm. he'd sold all his valuables, he'd mm. spent all his savings, he'd uh, borrowed money, he'd stopped paying bills, mm. and it had escalated with him and his girlfriend to a $300 a day habit. Mm. Um, he, um, he'd been a, a, an athlete and a footballer, and he, very gregarious and outgoing, he had a lot of activities and friends, but he'd, he'd kind of... Um, lost a lot of that social connection mm. and instead of being very uh, outgoing and doing stuff at weekends his life had really sort of contracted to this triangle of him his girlfriend and the heroine so mm. um and and he lost contact with a lot of people he'd, he'd been involved with over the years mm. i'd noticed that of course i noticed mm. him taking time off work particularly on a monday Mm -hmm. um, he never seemed to have any money for mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. And the only really odd thing I remember uh, in that time was finding a spoon, a burnt spoon, in the fridge mm -hmm. right. and and wondering what that was all about. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. uh, asking him a couple of times, I think, you know, are you using drugs? Mm -hmm. But the other thing I've caught, of course, I've realised and it's not just me but talking to lots and lots of families is that a kind of communication develops between the family and the person using the substance that uh, they tell us what what they want us to hear mm. and we hear what we want mm. to hear yeah and it, mm. it's kind of a honeymoon period i suppose mm. that they're in their happy user stage mm. believing they've got control over it yeah. and just letting out little bits of information but without mm. really telling you what's mm. going on for them and you you you're in denial and you, yeah. you don't you expect believe that. it yeah. And so mm. yeah and you want to believe it absolutely yeah, so exactly. um, that was what it was like for me yeah. until uh, 1996 june i'd come back from an overseas trip um with with my partner sandra and damien was sitting on my doorstep I just took one look at his face and knew something was wrong. Mm. And, you know, he basically looked up at me and said, the shit's hit the fan, Dad. Mm. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I'm on heroin. Mm. And, like, I could have dropped. I was mm. just so stunned. So I said, well, you better come in and tell me about it. So he then proceeded to tell me what he'd been doing. Um, he'd been introduced to it by a friend and a... a football friend who'd had an injury and mm. taken um, legal opiates for for pain relief and then and then escalated to heroin and um, and so I think you know the other thing about Damien and there's a lot of things about Damien but he was very much a risk taker mm -hmm. and I can just imagine him mm. begging his friend to let him try it which obviously subsequently happened mm. and then that very quickly move into mm. a dependency and um, uh, yeah as I said I had no idea um, I, I remember feeling 
some really strong emotions that day. Um, fear was the big one because, mm. I mean, you know, no real knowledge of what was involved. Mm. I just knew people died, yeah. so yeah. I immediately became afraid of that um, guilt. Mm. I and again, this is what families very, very often go through. What have we done wrong? You know, I've yeah. been divorced. Mm. I'd, I'd been out there counselling other people. I'd spent a lot of time away from home. Mm. Um, I yes. couldn't even see what was going on in my own family. Yeah. Um, so I, w I felt an enormous amount of guilt mm. and grief because mm. Damien had such a capacity for leadership and mm. and he had such a, an incredible um, charismatic personality that I just expected him to do great things. Mm. and in that moment it all went out the window um, and and these emotions are really common it's mm. very very common for families to feel these three combination of these three emotions but what we generally express is a secondary emotion which kind of masks everything else and that's anger and I remember really really getting angry with him and telling him how stupid he was and how he let himself and mm. was down and you know a very typical yeah. father's reaction Natural. I suppose yes. yeah. and um, and he just sat there crying and looking at me and um, and uh, and then eventually I just grabbed him by the collar and I dragged him up and I said we're gonna beat this mm. and again this is fairly common for fathers mm. you get a problem like this you want to fix it mm. so I then set about trying to fix it but in that early process I just really then discovered how helpless I was and how little there was for families mm. um, every place I rang I was kind of turned away mm. um, I remember ringing some of the services that were supposed to give support to families and nobody really knew how to cope with me I was pretty emotional and mm. uh, uh, I was pretty much turned away and of course what I also wanted to do again which is common from family's perspective was getting fixed mm -hmm. so uh, I rang treatment services and uh, like the first question they asked me was how old is he mm -hmm. and when I said 21 they said we can't talk to you about this right, and I had an no idea why that was at yeah. the time I've learned a lot since of course and I understand that a bit more now but but I was also kind of gobsmacked to realize that even though they weren't able to help me, they, they didn't even ask me how I was going, how Damien was going, what was happening. They just basically closed the door. And mm. thankfully, since then, there's been some changes, of course, with treatment services. But mm. but back then, that was pretty much the way they dealt with it. So, so, so Tony, just actually on that point, because I think that's, you know, that's really... Um, really quite a, a poignant story in many ways about sort of what you came up against um, mm. when you first came across the issue. So actually not, not long after Damien's death, I think it was, it was probably within sort of two years of it, um, the then Premier Bob Carr announced um, Australia's first drug summit um, here in New South mm -hmm. Wales. And, and I guess... Um, you know, speaking of, you know, what was out there and what wasn't out there, you were invited. This was clearly an opportunity 
to speak to that issue, you know, firsthand, I guess, about what you came up against and what was what services were available and weren't. Can you tell us a little bit about that process, how it felt to you okay. at the time, and and just what you think about drug summits too, in a broader sense of is that was that a yeah. moment in time, or is that something that is kind of useful now, ongoing? Yeah. Um. Well, I was glad to be involved, and I was glad to be invited, and and it was an, an enormous turning point and watershed. So I do recognise all that. Mm. Um, a lot happened for me in the lead up to that drug summit. I mean, mm. I'd been involved in in uh, planning the Torrance Room in the Wayside Chapel, where we opened oh, an right. injecting facility in the side. I'd actually gone to Switzerland to Geneva Harm Reduction Conference and met right. people over there. I'd gone to visit heroin prescription facilities. I'd mm. gone to injecting facilities. Uh, and I must admit, I, I kind of went over there with a bit of trepidation because I'd mm. been advocating for it. Uh, after I'd wrote my letter to the Herald, which was what kind of got me the publicity and got me out into the open, mm. um, I, I was informed by a lot of people, including Alex Wodak and others, about the fact that Damien didn't need to die. And, and of course, that was very resonant with me and so I I wanted to find out how we could prevent this and uh, how we could change the tactics so, but I went to Switzerland thinking if I find that I'm wrong in advocating for these things mm -hmm. uh, am I going to be prepared to come back and say I was wrong mm -hmm. and I determined that I would I thought yeah. if I go over there and I find it's a mess and things are worse I've got to come back and say I was wrong and I've got to take the opposing view. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, when I got to Switzerland, I just found it was so matter-of-fact and it was just so accepted mm -hmm. by the communities where these facilities were and by the people there that I didn't need to worry. I could come back even stronger, which is what I did because there was the... Um, the proposal by the ACT government to do heroin prescription. There was the proposal by, um, yeah, or the, the possibility of an injecting facility in New South Wales. Um, and I'd spoken to Bob Carr. I actually, I think I helped change Bob Carr's mind because he lost his brother to a, an overdose. That's true. That's and right, he said yeah. some pretty, he'd said some pretty nasty things mm. about drug users. Mm. Um, and he obviously saw my media and then he asked me to come and talk to him and I spoke to him for two hours mm. and and he did change. Um, was this prior to the summit, yeah. Tony, or was this but after? This is, yeah, this is well prior to the right. summit. Right. Um, and he'd actually then started to um, fund our organisation as well. So mm. I, think, I think I helped change his mind and he's acknowledged that and... John Della Boscus said it too, but but it was still a long way before we got the summit. And the, the thing that actually I think brought about the summit were, was was the, the picture of the su supposed thirteen-year-old yeah. injecting mm. in Caroline Lane in yeah, Redfern. That's right. Who later yeah. turned out to be a, a very young-looking eighteen-year-old who'd been paid by the photographer <laughs> for that photograph. Mm. But it did get the attention, obviously, of of the politicians, and so they realised they had to do something so mm. um, and we'd been plotting in the background to open the Wayside Chapel 
and then suddenly this drug summit's on us, so we had to move everything forward very, very quickly. And um, I pay a tribute to Anne Simons, a, mm. uh, a politician who died recently, because mm. she was really the leader of that. Jeez. And um, we had to move very quickly and uh, and opened the Wayside Chapel, and um, and then the drug summit came on us, and uh, and of course. Uh, well, you were there, and it mm-hmm. was an exciting event. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was really amazing. Mm. Yeah, we, we, we'd formed a coalition of people who wanted to change policy. We were having some success in talking to some politicians, although the Liberal Party remained firmly against it. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, through changed. that whole experience. So well, something's never changed. I mean, the very interesting politician at that drug summit was Robert Oakeshott, of course, who was a member of the National Party, and they'd been told to to vote point blank against every recommendation. And Robert says that that was the most shameful time of his life as a politician, mm-hmm. having to do that when, yeah. when he. And of course, he then became independent and. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm still talking about coming back at the next election. Mm. We need more politicians like him. But, but it was it was a tough time. It was mm. a tough time for you, Annie. I remember. <laughs> um, and and you know there were lots of people who were opposed to yes. the sort of things that we were advocating. Yes. Uh, but it, but nevertheless, you know, it made some very significant recommendations. It wasn't just the injecting sites. They were going to decriminalise cannabis. Mm. They were going to repeal mm. the Self-Administration That's Act. Right. They, they actually passed recommendations mm. that didn't eventually get through Parliament. Mm. But at the time, we felt that the dominoes would drop now, that mm. this was it, you know, having got these recommendations of it was only then a matter of time mm. for them all to fall over, which of course has not happened. Mm. So, so you asked me about the, mm. <laughs> my attitude to drugs. Yeah. Uh, look, it, it, it did produce change, significant change, but it doesn't mean that um, everything's all on track. So no, and, and, and 20 years <laughs> later, we're, we're talking pill testing at ferocious mm. levels yeah. um, at this mm. point, and you've, you've been engaged with this mm. debate and discussion as well. So if, you, if yeah. you could say something directly to politicians about pill testing and harm reduction at music festivals and other events, what, what would be your pitch? Okay, well, probably pretty predictable. <laughs> and we are going to make this a big a big uh, uh, in, impact in, in our national, international FDS there. We're going to we mm-hmm. produce some flyers. We're going to distribute them to all the politicians. <clears throat> we think it's a no-brainer. We think it just has to come in. Yeah. And um, we do that for three reasons. Uh, firstly, it will save lives and prevent uh, other other medical damage, and there's no question about that. And in in saying that, we really think it's laughable that the politicians say uh, there's no safe way to use a drug. Pill testing doesn't say that. Yeah. We would yeah. still we would still say that people have to be very very careful about what they take, and and we, we're not saying that because this pill doesn't show anything damaging that you should go and use it. And of course, the, the idea of pill testing tents is that they will be talking to people and advising them of the mm. risks and damage and what other uh, strategies they need to take to keep themselves safe. Mm. So that's the main thing, that it will keep people healthy and alive. 
second thing, though, is that we do know that some substances are contaminated. Mm. And we know from the one trial that we've had in Australia that two or three of the samples were contaminated with some pretty nasty stuff. Mm. So obviously it's going to identify mm. those substances that are definitely not mm. good to take. Right. And that can be then passed on to the punters and the people who are having their things tested. Thirdly, of course, though, and again, for researchers like yourselves, this is important. It gives us a picture of what's going on at these festivals mm. and what people are taking. Mm. And if there are any new drugs on the horizon that we need to be aware of. Mm. So I think it's, you know, mm. for those three reasons, it it just as I say, it's no mm. brainer. Yeah. Yeah. So, Tony, you mentioned your International Family Drug Support Day. That, um, yep. So the f if that was first on 2016, you launched that. Is that right? And then you've held it since? It was, yep. it was national. It was national then, and we had it okay. in the capital cities of Australia. Okay. Now it's international, and we've got them. We've got things happening in Macau, in Hong Kong, in Ireland, in England, in right. various right. places in the states. Yeah. It's. New Zealand, it's now international, right. and not only is it international, but it's big internationally. Yeah, in in right. America, particularly, yeah. there's going to be lots of events. And um, uh, actually, I've just got back from the from New York, where I was training some volunteers um, who are going to launch uh, FDS uh, USA wow. on international FDS oh, day. Oh, fantastic. So well right. done. And these organisations, Tony, in the States, presumably are ones that sort of pick up on the ethos of family drug support, that it's a, you know, sort of more uh, harm reduction based approach from families. Is that correct? Definitely. Mm. Definitely. They, they've been there for quite a while mm. and they have an advocacy role and they're a and they're very pro-harm reduction. Mm -hmm. They they hadn't contemplated doing the family support until I met with a, a couple of the key people and said, have you thought of doing an extra thing? And, and that's uh, mm. providing support to families. Well, their eyes lit up, of course, and they said, yes, that's what we need to do. So, um, Because, you know, going back that 21 years when we started, we weren't going to be an organisation that... Uh, helped families we weren't going to be an NGO or a not-for-profit we were we were just making a point mm. about about death and uh, mm. but then when we had our first meetings and realized how much need and how many mm. families were struggling mm. and and the fact that I'd had my background in in helping people um, I'd run over a hundred divorce groups and so I knew how people would get over get through that process mm. and how they can overcome the setbacks and I kind of use the same idea yeah. um, and it's mm. it's been very successful so yeah. um, and so you've got yeah. an event in Sydney is that right on Tuesday the 24th yep. are people welcome to come along to that Tony if they're yeah, interested absolutely in these are. issues it's at the Teachers Federation building okay. um, they can get details of that event and all the other events on our website uh, which is just www.fds.org.au and yeah um, we'd like them to register so that we know how many people are attending for yeah. catering purposes but yeah everybody's welcome and um, and you know above all we, we, we just say that if people do support the family the outcomes improve for everybody mm -hmm. and that is that, yeah. that is well uh, accepted now and there's 
plenty of papers been written on that. And, in, and including your book, Tony, which we'll put a link to on our website mm-hmm. too, Not My Family, Never My Child, What to Do With Someone You Love Is a Drug User, which was published in 2009. That's 10 years ago, Tony. Doing yeah, my math very well there. <laughs> yeah, and I've sold a few over the years, so obviously it is helpful to people. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, look, uh, Tony, I mean, thank you. We're, we'll probably wrap it up there. But, you know, I, I wanted to say as someone... As we started, you know, I've you and I have worked together for a long time, and we've we've been through all sorts of things. And we met, you know, um, not long, and you know, v- very close to when Damien died. In fact, not long after, um, and you've certainly had a huge impact on my own life as well. And you're you're such an impressive person, Tony. And very recently, I happened to be in an event with you that was around the pill testing issue. And you, I heard you very passionately speak to a politician, uh, a New South Wales politician there about why pill testing is so important. And you, you very clearly just said, no, no other parent should have to go through what I and my family have been through. And, I, and wow. that's what motivates you. And I, it, it was very powerful. And I just um, want to thank you and you know, really acknowledge the yeah. enormous work you've done over many, many years in this space and, um, you know, so many people that you've assisted to deal with these issues for the better, as well, you say. Well, thank you, Annie. Mm. And, um, and I mean, of course, that, that's mutual. You, you're one of my heroes. And, uh, <laughs> oh, this is lovely. It's a love fest. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's absolutely true. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, like, um, I'm not ashamed of my son. I... I do at times get angry with him still. <laughs> um, I do think that some of his choices were not uh, were not sensible, but I'm not ashamed of him. And um, and I know that had he not died when he did, he would have gone on to being very successful in whatever field he chose. Yeah. And that's the, that's yeah. the terrible thing about it. Yeah. I don't know if I've told you this story, Annie, but um, shortly after I started FDS and had the publicity, a woman contacted me and said she wanted to tell me her story. And I met with her in a coffee shop and uh, she was this um, mid-50s, I guess, and she gave me her business card and it was Dr. So-and-so, general practitioner. And she told me that when she was 15, she got involved with a a young man in his 20s who introduced her to heroin and she had a 15-year battle where she overdosed many times and she had children taken away, she committed crime, um, she attempted treatment so many times and at the age of 29 she woke up one day with a burning thought in her head that she wished she'd gone to university mm-hmm. and that thought wouldn't go away and so she, in a couple of, two or three days, she enrolled in TAFE to do her HSC and she enrolled on the methadone program oh. and 10 years after that day she graduated from medicine and and took her last dose and like that story has been repeated to me many times and and one thing i know of uh, uh, you know that's also related to this story is that i find that when people change their lives they don't do it because they're scared of something or because of negatives they do it when they see something better uh, and it's it's positive motivation that gets people to move on, and that's uh, 
that's what I firmly believe. And, and I, you know, Damien never had that opportunity. And that's why we say keeping people alive is so important yeah. because you never know when that moment's going to come for them to turn things around. Yeah. And I think that's the position you speak from, Tony, as a, as a parent, with the, um, you know, the, the love with which you speak of Damien and the, the love that you evoke or that power of to evoke that feeling in other people to say, mm. you know, this, to think about this on a very human and humane level mm. and, and of c with concern of for the people that you love is, mm. is so powerful and um, trumps anything that uh, we as researchers can offer actually in mm. terms of connecting with people and, and persuading people mm. of um, your point of, uh, our point of view. Mm. Yeah, so thank, thank you. you for your work and um, I guess we'll leave it there. Thanks again, Tony and Carla. We're we're out, but we'll be back again soon. Great lineup this year. I know mm. another episode of Speakeasy. Stay tuned and stay safe, everyone. We'll see you soon. For more information about this podcast. Our guests and upcoming episodes head to http://csrh.arts.unsw.edu.au. <laughs>